Hello, waterfowlers. This is the old timer coming to you from downtown Memphis. This will be episode 41. It'll be entitled On the Trail of the Red Gods, a toast to Wapanaka Lake. And by the end of this podcast, you'll be well familiar with Wapanaka Lake. But before we do that, I just want to say about uh, eight days ago, there was a little small cold front that came through. When I mean small, the temperatures got down into the mid-40s for a low and then the, in the mid-60s for the high. But w- my wife and I were sitting on the balcony. We we're on the 12th floor of a condo unit that sits smack dab on the Mississippi River, looking north at, at the river. And can we see it for about two and a half miles before it makes a big bend to the west. But we were sitting on the balcony, and about 5.30, we always go out there with the binoculars, and I happened to be scanning the skies when I noticed a flock of geese, and there were snow geese, and there was about uh, 400 in them. They were not flying in a V-shape, and when they get that large of a flight, they usually fly in a long single line, and they'll be uh, from, uh, from the top to bottom, they'll be layered in about four or five different layers of ducks, but stretched out for, gosh, this was for at least half a mile, at least 400 ducks. Now, that's an estimate, but I feel pretty comfortable in some of my estimates. And then after that, from 5.30 until 6.15, we saw flock after flock. In fact, some 15 different flocks came by, varying anywhere from 200 to 500 going south. Right at dark, which was about 6 o'clock, 6.15 or so, the last two bunches, they circled up and landed in what's called the uh, Dacus Lake, which is across the river from us, and I can see it fairly well, and they were going to spend the night there because it apparently had got too dark for them. The other ones that went in front of them, I believe, were going to land on the Mississippi River, and as I told you, the Mississippi River right now is at the lowest stage it's ever been since they started recording levels. So that was unusual, and then about five days after that, we were walking in Tom Lee Park, which butts up right in our north end of our place. The, a flock of about 200 white pelicans came down migrating, and that's not unusual. They're a little bit two or three weeks late this year coming down, at least for me to see the first flock, and they fly just to like the sort of like the sandhill cranes do. They tend to circle up. And then all they'll circle for a while, and then they'll just head south in a straight line, and they'll fly so far, and they'll circle again. But the the white pelicans do basically the same thing. So enough of that. So we're going to get into episode twenty or forty-one. It is, and it's on the trail of the red gods. A toast to Wapanaka Lake. Most of the mid Southerners fought valorously in the war. That's the Civil War, and after its ending. They returned home, then controlled by carpetbaggers here in Memphis, especially. It didn't take long for the old greatcoats to turn their muzzle loaders on game. They crossed the Mississippi River at Memphis on the steamer John Overton and landed at Mound City, which is in Arkansas. From there, conveyance was arranged and made by wagon to Wapanaka Lake, then ruled by market hunters. By the early 1870s, however, the carpetbaggers were losing power, and the old gray coat generals, colonels, captains, and privates were reestablishing their dominance in real estate. When the Kansas City, Fort Scott, and Memphis Railroad and other ribbons of steel began crossing 
East Arkansas in the early to mid-1880s, there was a trestle and water tank at Big Creek, 25 miles northwest of Memphis, on what later became the Frisco system. That water tank and cindered platform just beyond was destined to, for years, mark the getting-off place for what was probably the greatest waterfowl concentration area and best hunting site in the United States. That is Wapanaka Lake, of fabled Indian lore by name. Directly beneath Flyway and Memorial, and harboring wild game worth a king's ransom to be defaulted by posterity for its acreage, Wapanaka Lake held just about the nation's heaviest population of waterfowl. At times, it staggered credulity. Post-Civil War times, however, Wapanaka Lake seems to have been little known sportingly. The late Captain Bill Allen, one of Memphis' greatest elder sportsmen, told of a camp hunt he made shortly after the surrender of the Civil War. He stood in the willows in Wapanaka Lake and with a muzzle-loading shotgun bagged 167 ducks in a day. The Memphis Commercial Appeal newspaper printed on November the 2nd, 1882, Lake Wapanaka, 25 miles from the city, that's Memphis, on the Arkansas side, is at present a duck of a place, swarming with thousands of those birds. On Monday, a party of four started from Memphis to hunt on this lake. They returned, having shot 150 ducks. At one charge, three barrels were fired, killing 27 birds. With the Red God's calling, several Memphis waterfowlers visited Wapanaka Lake by a railroad building work train in 1883, where they found several market hunters camped on the banks of Big Creek, which was on the north side of Wapanaka Lake, where they made huge shipments of waterfowl to Memphis game markets by railroad. It was an, in an old Indian territory that on September the 7th, 1886, a famous prestigious duck club immortalized by Nash Buckingham in so many of his writings was established. And I'll get into Nash Buckingham a little more in just a minute. Impressed with the game-laden forest and beautiful Wapanaka Lake, the sports negotiated with small landowners in the area and bought 5,500 acres, 600 acres of which was Lake Wapanaka, surrounded by cypress swamplands. The first clubhouse was an abandoned trapper log cabin on the west bank of Big Creek. A Memphis newspaper article described its organization. A new ducking club to be called the Wapanaka Outing Club was organized at the office of Claps and Beard, their attorneys, yesterday afternoon. This is a new addition to the other numerous sporting clubs in existence here, and being composed of such excellent members and having excellent sporting goods in near reach ought to be a big success. It has procured privileges at and on Wapanaka Lake on the Kansas City Railroad, where they anticipate royal sport in ducks or other game this season. When Nash Buckingham, noted outdoor writer and conservationist and hunter, especially of ducks and geese and quail, when he was a lad, lad his father was a member of the prestigious Waternock Outing Club from its beginning. 
Nash considered it the premier ducking club in the country. Chesapeake of the South, he called it. When Nash first went to the club in 1890 at the age of 10, there was no bridge across the Memphis, Mississippi River at Memphis. Trains had to be backed down and inclined onto a huge transport steamboat, taken across and hooked onto again in the flatlands of Arkansas before heading to San Francisco. At the club, youngsters were kept well at heel and were warned to talk sparingly unless otherwise bidden. Wretched the youth who blabbed of how many snorts Mr. So-and-so took or how much changed hands in the poker game they peeked at from a sheltered observation post around the chimney corner. The first repeating shotgun Nash Buckingham ever saw was a Spencer operated by Mr. Bonnie, a famous shot from Louisville, Kentucky. Nevertheless, for the most part, members clung to works of art by Parker, Greener, Scott, Smith, and Wesley Richards. They believed in stiff powder loads, plenty of big shot, and devil take the Greek oil. Sterling shots, they were taintless of porcelain streaks or sweat dodging. This was Wapanaka in their earliest of days, the home of the Delaware Indians from the east who had migrated to the area in the early 19th century amongst the Arkansas Indian tribes and also the western Tennessee, Mississippi, Chickasaws. Did you not know of it, talking about Wapanaka Lake? No, of course not. Come, I will tell you what I know while the quiet patter of rain outside of our condo unit weaves pleasant memories amid the curling smoke rings that drift upward from my pipe as I podcast this episode. And under its conjuring influence, my mind wanders back to the golden age of waterfowling when, one November morning in 1894, six members partook of a most savory and excellent 6 a.m. breakfast in their pretty cottage clubhouse, where 45 lockers bore the names of their owners who constituted the club. The season for duck shooting was at its zenith, and the sport was royal, for in November clouds and myriads of ducks and geese and a few swans drifted towards the gulf with the Mississippi River as a guide. Between 7 and 8 a.m., waterfowl streamed in from roosting to the freeing grounds of the club, as marsh ducks loved the shallows and mud puddles where coontail, smartweed, peppergrass, wild rice, coat's foot, and acorns were knee-deep in water. It had been a bright night, which generally made for poor shooting, because ducks fed by the light of the moon and frolicked a doze during the day in sequestered spots. But hark, the morning opened hot, a red-letter day royal it would be. J.A. Austin, one of the members in Price Lagoon, threw out twelve cedar and four live decoys with his black paddler by his side while mallards that he wisely refrained from firing at when they arose like a storm and swept all around them, now returned in singles, pairs, and small flocks. They darted ravishingly to the mudflats and feeding places and around the live quacking decoys, confusing the gunners by bold sweeps and incessant aerial maneuverings. Sharply now his smith double rang out the death note to lordly drakes and russet in mallards bagging 30 before 9 a.m. and 74 by 3 p.m. 
which were retrieved by the Serb Bruno, a smooth-coated Chesapeake Bay retriever. Crockett, his black paddler, was named a right. He had genius in knowing where game was or was not at different times of day, how to approach it, and how to outwit nature's wariest sentinels. He paddled the marshland like a spider when jump-shooting, where the shooter dared not attempt to venture without a paddler, never failing to retrieve when no Chesapeake or Irish water spaniel was around, talking about Crockett. He told Austin during the hunt, Austin being the member, J.A. Austin, Boss, if you old gwine to shoot at them blackjacks, work fast, work fast, boss, cause here they come, there they go. That same day, Guido's, and I said that Guido is William Arthur Wheatley, Guido's share was 85 ducks shot in the central stand of Little Lake, opposite Cross Arms, all retrieved by curly-coated Maringo Ring, who was a prince of the House of Chesapeake's, royal in looks, quick and tireless in work, a tiger to fight, allowing no one but the gunner to touch his pile of game, and faithful to death. Guido's paddler was old Fred, long in the service of the club. That day, when a flock of speed demons, which were green-winged tills, fed by, like F-16s, old Fred shouted, Let them go, they don't make a mouthful. When Guido asked Fred, old Fred, how he knew where to toss the decoys, old Fred replied, I pushed them that where the ducks want to land. Far from away at the Willis Poles crossing came faintly the report of George Mitchell's, another member's, his new gun, and although Mallards fairly pelted him, one barrel of his gun proved useless, and the mire and grass cut down his score to 89 ducks and a goose because he had no retriever nor paddler to find them in all the grass and mire. The keenest gunner of the bunch, perhaps, was the silver-haired Vice President A.C. Treadwell, whose 65 years had not dimmed the fire in his eyes nor paled his ruddy cheeks kept aglow by sports afield. He stood at the junction of Cross Arms in Big Lake, and though one of the club's deadliest shots was the ejector, hammerless, he was out of the flight line and tied Mitchell's score. His retriever, Topsy, wavy-coated and strong, was a model form, size, coat, head, and color of all their Chesapeake's and a most gallant and eager worker. Sank his paddler said when a flock of spoonies buzzed around, Them spoonbills is mighty fine ducks to give to your friends. Nevertheless, the champion of the day, however, was the foxy and alert lawyer, initials U.W. Miller, whose sharp eyes had seen afar off the clouds of green-winged teal rushing into Walker's Cove like they had been sent for a doctor. He hastened there and dropped anchor in the grass and willows, five inches of water and eight feet of muck. Endlessly, each tube of his Parker double spit fire until 110 pump till filled his bateau to the brim. Miller's prided himself on never missing, except in once in a while, as he said. When he did, Osborne, his paddler, was always ready with an excuse, such as, Yo fettered him, or that bird was show a long ways off and flying some, or the shells they make nowadays ain't what they used to be. When a member was shooting his ducks too frequently with a second barrel after missing with the first, Osborne frequently gave forth with an expression often heard at the trap, Boss, you ought to use that second barrel first. From Long Pond stand came many twin shocks from the deadly tubes 
of the tall, genial George Handworker, another member who counted only what he bagged. His score was 81, all retrieved by his Irish water spaniel, Frank, who dove out of sight for cripples and at command would bring in a decoy at times, if asked. Back at the clubhouse that night, heartfelt congratulations preceded supper. Never were mileage roasted nor till broiled more daintily by that chief of chef steak cuisine and champion club keeper and coffee distiller than Uncle Phil Gwynn. From the club's inception in 1886, he served as paddler-in-chief and general all-around General Alessimo of the Duck Club. A few years later, he became caretaker and cook and knew each member's likes and dislikes as to food. Uncle Phil had learned his cooking art from the Frenchman John Gaston, who owned a famous French restaurant in Memphis. No one was more demanding of his food than a southern gentleman, and no club could exist very long without the service of an excellent cook well-versed in the southern style of cooking. He or she must be the master of the crocks, pots, stewpans, and cook stove, probably the two most famous in the culinary domain in the Southland were Uncle Phil at Wapanaka and Queen Victoria Bounds at Beaver Dam Ducking Club near Tunica, Mississippi. During the off-season, members often gathered for lunch at Doug Stafford's famous Mermaid Tavern on Cotton Row in Memphis. Here, they plowed through plates of Chef Mingo's barbecued spare ribs, mashed turnips, pot licking and greens, corn sticks, wedges of molasses marinade pie, and cups of Louisiana coffee. If a shortage of paddlers occurred, Uncle Phil undertook his old occupation, going out on the lake serving as paddler for some lucky sport. He owned a heavy old 10-gauge double-barrel Wesley Richards Magnum and was considered a keen shot and a natural-born hunter and excellent trainer of water dogs, especially Chesapeake's and Irish water spaniels. The menu at Wapanaka, as got up by Uncle Phil, was wholly original and always caused much merriment. Dinner at the club might start with the passing around of empty brass cartridge cells on which were written the different courses. For instance, when the sports sat down at the table, a shell was handed to them on which was written coffee or tea. Of course, they all coffeed or teed. These shells were at once removed and another lot of empties passed around. This time, bread and butter, any style, was called for. The third series read barbecued goose stuffed. The fourth was till broiled. The fifth redheads baked. The sixth mallards pot pie, and so on to every different kind of duck had been served in every conceivable style. Uncle Phil's dinner table was no place for a dyspeptic. Members always began their meals with a prayer by Uncle Phil, and all ended it by saying, O Lord, from error's way defend us lest we mistake thy will for luck. Give us at dawn a flight stupendous. Don't send coots, but geese and ducks. The table was then cleared in a large goblet of sparkling water. Now be it remembered that nothing stronger was ever imbibed at the clubhouse. You remember that now. As they told others with tongue and cheek, <laughs> it was placed before each sport, that's uh, sparkling water, okay, followed by a large number eight shotgun shell in which was inserted a fine Havana cigar. This was a cue for the sports to retire around the glowing log fireplace of the clubhouse 
Here they toasted Uncle Phil with Long May You Live at our Indian Lake that we call Wapkinaki. Then each fort with jest and wit and hearty friendliness and fraternity nobly congratulated the ones who had beaten him with many a toast and never a boast, brothers all. This was also one of the happiest times in an old-timer's life when gathered around the fireplace in came the toddies, and not sparkling water in this case, and cigars and pipes, the latter being veteran partners of a hundred experiences, the fragrant tobacco furnishing a sort of halo of dreams which Rip Van Wrinkle might enjoy. What fun, delightful memories came spontaneously up, how the happy days were lived over again, the best shots taken, not once, but a hundred times. The lucky shots made so often the future misses seemed impossible. No better time than this for the achievements and joys of the past. On this particular night, in the amicable and soothing company of those proved friends of his favorite pastime, Guido went first. He said, We can all remember from our childhood the popular poem of the old oaken bucket, in which the poet sung, I dear to my heart are the scenes of my childhood. So at this time, in responding to those magic words that are my subject, allow me to say that if that poet had ever felt the thrill of the communion with nature that comes to every true sportsman afield and afloat, instead of singing the old oaken bucket, he would have sung of the sport of his childhood, and then we should have embalmed in song the love of nature's enthusiasts for the true companion of his hours of leisure, the gun. May I express it as the wish of every sportsman that the poet will yet choose this life subject, talking about the gun, and then what joy it will give us to sing their choice meters of our early love for that old family relic, the old gun. In your speaker's case, it was an old flintlock muzzleloader that had been changed to use percussion caps. It had been carried by my mother's grandfather at the siege of Lewisburg in 1758 during the Seven Year War, or it was also known as the French and Indian War, when the colonists captured that stronghold of France in the New War. It was known as a Queen Anne armed musket, and with it I used to frighten the chipmunks, squirrels, crows, and woodchucks on my father's hillside farm in central New York, and to produce lameness in the region of my right shoulder. But despite all its blemishes, that old gun held such a warm place in my youthful affection that the improved guns of my maturer years have never caused me to forget it. And to make a confession, I do not believe that my first deer, a ten-point book, gave me half as much pride and self-satisfaction as did the death of the first chipmunk brought to bear with the old musket. The guns of our childhood, of which we have clear, distinct, and sometimes tender recollections, were from many makers and principally were double barrels, although a few shot a single tube. And oh, how we all lovingly remember those halcyon days when we played hooky from school to spend a day of fill, even though we knew we would get a paddling on our backside administered by our parents and the schoolmaster. But even such misapplied use of the paddle did not cause a final separation and absolute divorce between the gun and us when with gun on our shoulders and ammunition in our vest, we strolled along meadowlands in search of small game, or perched on the remains of old trees that had fallen into a lake and shot waterfowl, far more satisfactory than we ever shot in our mature years.
The joy of those early days with Gunn will ever linger as the brightest on memory's pages and ought to be embalmed in holiness because we were then too young to know anything about that satire on the sportsman invented, invented by some villain incarnate who said, All hunters and fishmen will lie. At that period of our lives, we knew nothing of the license granted to hunting stories and innocently tried to tell the truth about our exploits on land and water. What sportsman present but cherishes the memories of the time he felt the thrill that came with the downing of his first quail or duck, causing every nerve ending to tingle with the emotion, and how eagerly you did retrieve it. Do you not remember how you felt when through your lack of skill the hunted gained his freedom? Oh, the disappointment, and how you blamed yourself alone. All laid the fault on the wind or anything else if you had a companion along. And when you afterwards related the incident, what person present will make an affidavit that you gave your friend a veritable account of the transaction and did not tell a hunting story? How pleasant the recollection of the picture hung on memory's wall of the time when we approached our first big game on a still hunt. How spectacular the leaves of the forest were on that most beautiful day of early fall. How the gold of the hickory, birch, and breech harmonized with the red and purple of the maple and oak, and the dark green of the pine, spruce, and hemlock. What a joy it was to breathe the crisp, crisp morning air. How the pulse throbbed and the heart thumped as we carefully crept up the hillside to deal death with the rifle to the deer in the vale. And how, when out of breath, we reached the crest of the hill and tried to sight our rifle, we had buck fever in such an intense form that we could not have hit a mountain. Such are the pleasant pictures that furnish the brightest pages of a true sportsman's memory, and each one of you will agree with me that it is not the capture of game that gives the jest and charm of the ramble of Phil, but the pleasure of the communion with nature that such occasions afford, and the gorgeous recollections that linger around such trips in after years. Let me express the wish that every lover of the gum may have just joyous use of them, that as your head grows more snow-like and your footsteps fewer and halting, you may look back on a life enlivened by the joy of waterfowling. And as you doze away your few short years, may your dreams be happy ones of ranging the fields and woods of dreamland, and may you paddle across Wapanock Lake, accompanied by the most joyous companion of the shotgun. Now that was a long speech by Guido at the uh, Wapanaka Outing Club to the club members. And I, Nash Buckingham, I'll get to him a more throughout this podcast, but he was a famous outdoor writer, hunter, fisherman, field trial judge, quail hunter, and an avid conservationist. He was the one that actually taught Nash Buckingham when Nash was a young kid. Not only how to hunt, and Miles' daddy was a big hunter. Miles taught his own son how to hunt. But Guido really jumped in and taught Nash how to do the fine art of duck hunting. And he was also the one that taught Nash how to write all of his famous stories in his books and outdoors articles. So continue on next to speak at the clubhouse that night after Guido was George Handworker. And he was a famous uh, waterfowler there at the club, Miffian who observed of late, talking, he's talking now, that quite a few of you have fallen into the fad of using the expression, quite a few. An attempt to analyze a quotation leads to some confusion 
of ideas in my mind with doubts as to the fewness of quite a few and whether quite a few are fewer than a few. As the fewness of quite a few is emphasized by the quite, it seems to follow that the fewness of quite a few should be fewer than a few, and is opined that the few do comprehend how much fewer than a few are quite a few. The question raised is how few are quite a few than a few. Any light on this profound and puzzling question will be gratefully received. After much back and forth, no one had an answer. Minute after minute passed while wisps of smoke curled from the backlog of the fireplace. For some little time they had been thinking of giving it up for the night when Guido made the mistake of asking Handworker which member had the best gun. He lit his bulldog pipe and walked around the room in a deep thought for a few moments and then engaged the members in conversation once again. Yours is the best gun, but mine, nodding in Guido's direction, shoots so far I have to soak my shot in salt to keep the game I kill from spoiling before I get to it. Guido wore the air of a man both hurt and disappointed and offered no utterance. He never again brought up the question of whose gun was better. It was then the members asked Uncle Phil to step forward. Not being bashful, he high-stepped it to the front and asked, Did y'all ever hear of the scraped eyes and cousin Levi had ducking on the Mississippi? No, we never did. Do tell it, was the reply. Uncle Phil said, Were you must knows that the eyes and cousin Levi took it up into our heads on a Saturday morning years ago to go a gunning after ducks in my pappy's bateau. So in we goes and scull down these river and a right smart amount of ducks flew back and forth and a few lit by sandbar. They went to feeding and pay no attention to usins. I grabbed up my powder horn to prime it and it slipped right out of my hand and settled to the bottom of the river. The, the water was amazingly clear and I could see it on the bottom. Now I could, couldn't swim a lick so I says to Cousin Levi, You're a pretty good clever fella. Just let me borrow your powder horn to prime. And does your know the stingy critter wouldn't? Well, says I, you're a pretty good diver, and if you'll dive and get it, I'll give it to you. I thought it leave his powder horn behind, but he didn't. Instead, he stuck it in his hissin pocket, and down he went, and there he stayed. Here the gather and opened their eyes with amazement, and a pause of some seconds ensued. Before Uncle Phil added, I's looked down and what does y'alls think the critter was a doin? Lord, exclaimed Guido, smiling and listening enthusiastic, I'm sure I don't know. Uncle Phil said, there he was, said, sitting on the bottom of the river, pouring the powder out of my horn and hisses. The members burst into laughter and in that booming voice of, of Guido said, I believe every word of it, every word of it. For most of the night ended all too soon. While Uncle Phil served up the platters at the club, there was much merriment. It was no surprise then that his death in 1901 caused much heartache. Bun F. Price, one of the charter members, gave this tribute to Uncle Phil. Since the organization of the club, except for a short time, this old man has had charge of our culinary department and had won an enviable reputation as an artist in his line. He was by profession a steamboat cook, having served in this capacity on the best steamers that ever run on the Mississippi River. By nature, he was a thorough sportsman and an ardent admirer of all gentlemen who loved a dog and gun. 
By birth he was a slave, and as such entered the Confederate army as a servant to his younger master. By education he was a Democrat, and cast his destiny with that party after the close of the war, and be it said to his credit, he never deserved him. By religion he was a Methodist, and the little cabin situated on the bank of Big Creek in the bottom near the clubhouse is where his faith shone out in all its simplicity as he taught the little children of the neighborhood at his Sunday school. At Christmas time he always had for them a Christmas tree, well laden with presents, bought by voluntary contributions solicited by him from us. Uncle Phil was a character. His education kept him in close touch with his many white friends, and he was constantly on the alert to see what he could do or say for their comfort, and his great delight was in their pleasure. By his genial disposition, ready wit, and unsevering honesty, he won a warm place in the affection of not only the members of the Wapanaka Outing Club, but also all the sportsmen of Memphis, together with visiting sportsmen of many other cities. No man has died for many years past who was more honored or respected than Uncle Phil, and the sportsmen of this city will never look upon his likes again. This eulogy reflects just how deeply the sports revered him. Their bondage was sincere and went to the core of their soul. A loss was felt for years when one of their paddlers or cooks left their life for the heavenly world, but more so when Uncle Phil passed. Nash Buckingham was still rather young when Uncle Phil died. Twenty-one years later, he captured the moment for Phil and Stream magazine, hacked out on a typewriter in a story entitled Thou and Thy Gun Bearer. In it, he wrote most eloquently about Uncle Phil's last night. Guido, Nash, and Miles, who was Nash's father, were at the club when he began slipping fast. Word came quickly, and here are the words written by Nash that have been preprinted countless times. How well I remember his last night, for I was over there with Daddy and Mr. Arthur, that's Guido, and several other members who cherished the old slave. For hadn't they been together when storms beat upon them, when suns rose over the stubble of the Northlands and set for them in the dark undergrowth of southern canebrakes? Hadn't they known together all the joys of the chase and found therein for one another only boon comradeship and respect? We sat around the yawning fireplace that bitter cold night, each one for the most part busy with thoughts of sadness, for the quaint old soul no nearer the brink. At length, Mr. Arthur and Daddy, unable to stand it longer, slipped quietly away and went across the pasture lot to Uncle Phil's cabin, and I, unnoticed, trudged along behind them. I wanted to see Uncle Phil, too. A dim light burned in the room where the old man lay, and as in most homes when the final hour impedes, a group of friends and relatives and kindred offsprings had gathered, standing and setting about in various postures, of dejected waiting. We tiptoed to the bedside and looked looking down at the pathetic figure, lying there so frail and still. Child that I was, his likeness in the fullness of manhood came sweeping across the years. I saw him tall and vigorous, scarcely bending under the weight of a deer, or outlined a black statue as he stood to pole the duck boat into the very teeth of a wintry gale. I saw him again as he peeked and pried into the pots and pans 
and cast a shadow upon the kitchen curtains. Mr. Arthur bent down and spoke very gently. Uncle Phil, this is Mr. Arthur. How do you feel? Do you know me? The drooping eyelids fluttered, and for a moment, the old man's eyes searched Mr. Arthur's face without understanding, and then just the drift of a smile repaid the understanding that his treasured friend had come to him in this hour. And then Uncle Phil whispered, The mud is deep, sir. I's holding on the willows, but I'm sinking fast. Mr. Arthur placed his hand upon Uncle Phil's, and I believe that as the white hand clasped the black one, there passed between those two old friends a message that they alone understood, and perhaps from that hour looked forward to. Silently, Daddy and I stepped forward and petted Uncle Phil's hand, and each time the eyelids fluttered feebly. He had seen us and understood, I know. Then we went quietly again out into the night. As a voice from the distant past and yet a present, as someone said, this expresses what men will feel for as long as one of them stands under the stars and listens to the wind on a night a friend dies. Dialect flows unfretted through Nash's famous stories. Many would say that his words were condescending at best, racist at worst, but viewed in the perspective of times, it reflects a loving bond of mutual friendship, respect, and esteem that existed between the club members, Nash and the paddlers. In truth, his extensive use of dialect gives reality to his work. As one paddler said, Mr. Nash, all through these many years I have known you, I can truthfully say you always would try to do something to put sunshine and happiness in someone's life. You would give up your gun, dogs, boots, shells, waiters, boat, even your guide. I pray God's richest blessing upon you and your family always. Just think of long ago days on duck stands and goose pits on sandbars and through cornfields quail hunting. If anyone has ever written better than about the halcyon days of waterfowling and quail shooting than Nash Buckingham, I would like to know his name. Here on these fable shooting grounds of Wapanaka Lake, the paddlers were immortalized as much as its members. Henry Douglas, Kenny, Aaron Jones, Mose Holmes, Osborne Neely, St. Davis, Old Fred, which I mentioned, his last name was Valentine, so Old Fred Valentine, Buster, Son, Bunnett, Sam Cook, Columbus, and others. Moreover, here rest the remains of its paddlers. The cemetery is situated on an Indian mound where once was located nearby a Methodist log church that Uncle Phil officiated over. Today, the Indian mound is badly reduced in size and overgrown with trees, vines, and grass. Sunken grave sites are located here, but only one faded marker tells the name of its inhabitants, Crockett Winesbury, a paddler and a favorite of Nash Buckingham. Somewhere among the overgrown trees and vines rests Uncle Phil. 430 ducks was a score of six men one particular November day in 1894. Each gutter took home five ducks and a wagon divided 400 among the five offering asylums of Memphis. The next year, the club established a self-imposed limit per gun, which was 50 ducks, with as many swans and geese as one could down. 
For every duck over the limit, the sports had to deposit a dollar in the slot of the Wapanaka Treasury. Nevertheless, it was still the custom to give the bulk of the game to those who needed it. Another rule adopted by the club was that no gun larger than a 12-board double was to be used. It was considered unfair for any member to hold the advantage of shooting 8 or 10-board guns, as the ducks were so thick that it was regarded as malicious mischief to use a heavy gun. This placed each member on equal terms and rendered the sports much more enjoyable. In 1888, over 1,000 ducks were shot in one week, while on November the 12th, five members shot 261. For three months, September through December of 1888, the members harvested 2,200 ducks. Be it remembered that none were shot upon the water, but were bagged while in full flight. The mallard record for a day's winter ducking was held by W.D. Bethel, who bagged 106. Bob Tate followed with 99, and Mentor Parker, 92. He winged 127, but being without a dog, he managed only 92. It was here that the first Chesapeake Bay dog was introduced in the Mid-South to the gunners of the region. In November 1887, Guido received by express a Chesapeake from the kennels of Ed Lynch of Magnolia, Maryland, and Ed was a famous Chesapeake breeder and trainer of Chesapeake Bays. It cost $150. As I said, Lynch was caretaker of the Carroll Allen Gun Club located on Chesapeake Bay. He bred and preserved the purity of the Chesapeake Bay dog up to the highest standards and always had on hand 10 or 12 purebred Chesapeakes. Probably no other sportsman devoted more time to their introduction into the Mid-South than Guido. Uncle Phil Gwynn ably trained Guido's Chesapeake as he did for other members. In 1896, Nash, with 19 other gunners, killed a limit each of 50 birds before noon, with many geese added and a swan thrown in. By this time, the rules had been changed so that pumps could be used. Nash shot an 1893 model Winchester pump action repeating shotgun, 32-inch, full choked, offered as a school prize between Nash and his brother by Irby Bennett who was then district manager of the Winchester Repeating Arms Company of New Haven, Connecticut. Big Brother, however, won the gun, but eventually physical competition and great presence of mind triumphed over mentality, and the wonderful Winchester became Nash's. Its barrel was swayed back, so Nash had an old German gunsmith lay a solid steel rib down his tube, undoubtedly the first rib Winchester shotgun in existence. Nash also whittled off its half-pistol grip with his pocket knife. He was experimenting and pioneering even then. For many years and many a year, the old Winchester went on and on along the trails of the Red Gods. It knew the sunrises and sunsets of Wapanaka and Beaver Dam down in Mississippi. A comrade in arms whose foreign fibers proved stronger than the Sterling Powell who loved it and the game they played so well together. One of Nash's favorite recollections happened on Washington's birthday, 1901, when a famous old lawyer of Memphis and he hunted with Aaron, the black paddler serving as their paddler, using live decoys, his father's 12-gauge Greener Magnum and Winchester leader shells with pintails literally covering them up. They had their limit of 50 springtails each in two hours, 
gunning from Trexler's stand at Wapanaka Outing Club, and the Red God smiled. Nash came into the outdoor world in 1890 when he was 10. He came into, into the world in the 1890 period of unlimited game when sportsmen thought ducks, geese, and quail were provided in limited abundance by nature. He began hunting when he was eight after receiving a Christmas shotgun. When he was 10 years old, as I said, 1890, on a Saturday in November, he took his first duck hunt at the Long Point Blind at Wapanaka Lake with a 16-gauge double-hammered Parker and downed his first duck, a greenhead. He remarked, As far as my boorish eyes could reach, the Great Lake was pimpled with rafts of swans, geese, and ducks. That day, my ears first knew the haunting cadence of wildfowl hubbub. He vowed afterwards to study so hard that I'll never have to return to school on Saturdays for demerit. That same year, he took his first old duck hunt with paddler Son Bono, shooting his beloved Bone Hill hammer double gun by sundown, about shot out of ammunition. He had motored a club limit of 50 milers, sprigs, gadwalls, and widgets. In 1921, Western Cartridge Company's president, John Olin sent Nash his personal Burt Becker overboard Askins Willie Fox 12-gauge to field test the company's experimental newfangled slow-burning powder purported to significantly enhance performance. As Nash would later state, I was the load tester. Those shells would subsequently come on the market in 1922 under the trade name Super X. During this time, Nash was a partner in a Memphis sporting goods business named Buckingham, Inslee, Kerrigan, and Company. Through the testing of the Super X shot shell, Becker, Askin, and Sweeley discovered that a tightly tapered chamber linked to a long, gradual tapered forcing cone that flowed into the barrel bore to 0.74 inches as opposed to the tighter industry standard of 0.729 gave them the tight pattern they saw. What resulted was the H.E. Grave Super Fox, and a handful of Becker board foxes. Today, those fouling pieces are treasured collectibles. He, sold, he was so impressed with H.E. Grade Super Fox, he abandoned his 34-inch Parker and got his own Super Fox waterfowl gun in January 1923, bored by Burt Becker specifically for Super X shot shells. John Olin got one of the first Super Foxes on December the 23rd, 1922. The new Super Fox was collaborated was collaboration between Captain Charles Askin Sr., the best-known gunwriter in the country at the time, E.M. Sweeley, an attorney from Twin Falls, Idaho, whose avocation was finding ways to improve the ballistic of a shotgun, and Bert Becker, the latter being a superb Philadelphia gunsmith and unquestionably the finest gun bore that ever lived. It was on the morning of January the 31st, 1923, last day of the federal shooting season, when Nash and Aaron, the black paddler, went to Tate's pocket in a kidney's, Dan Kidney's boat. Shooting at waterfowl for the first time at Wapanaka with the big test gun, the HE-grade Super Fox and experimental number four Super X shot shells, in a little more than an hour, he recorded his 25th Drake, which was limited at that time. This Super Fox served as Nash waterfowling gun for, for years, he liked it so much he commissioned Becker in 1927 to build a big one for him just like it, H.E. Grade, 
that weighed nine and a half pounds and had 32 inch full and full barrel overboard to deliver a 98% pattern of three inch loads of number four shot at 40 yards. It had a straight hand stock, a rubber recoil pad, and a Buckham's order no safety. Interesting to know that Colonel Harold Sheldon, himself a great outdoor author, named this gun Bow Whoop. Hunting with Nash at the Section 16 Duck Club near Clarendon, Arkansas, Sheldon noted, Nash had bl blinded up in a dense thicket of willows some 150 yards from my stand. A pair of mallards traveling high and in a hurry went over Nash. Both collapsed, and after a moment of complete silence, the double boom of the big gun came rolling roundly over the marshes. It sounded exactly like two solo notes from the bass horn and the symphony orchestra, and I mentioned it to Nash when we got back to the lodge. Bo-whoop, bo-whoop, that's how it sounded. And thus a shotgun was birthed that would become legendary. For twenty years, Buckingham and his beloved bo-whoop were virtually inseparable. The gun appeared in many of his stories and thus became familiar to his vast readership. In 1927, Becker made Nash three Super Fox double guns, two 12 bores for waterfowling and a 20-gauge magnum for upland game, bored for three-inch 20s and a set of quail barrels. Burt made a specialty of boring for a client favored shot size, but he preferred fours coppered. It was Nash through his writings that elevated Becker to near sainthood. After two decades of partnership, Bo Whoop, probably the most famous waterfowling gun ever, was lost when it was inadvertently left on a car fender by a game warden after a morning shoot at Section 16 Duck Club in Arkansas. In Nash's words, I shot Bo Whoop steadily for 21 years until, in 1948, December 1, an examining game agent during a field check just forgot to put it back where he found it in our automobile. He left it twixt hood and fender. Despite an exhaustive search by game wardens, police and hunters, and ads placed with local newspapers, Buckingham never saw Bo Whoop again. Its whereabouts was stuff of legends for years. Afterwards, one of Nash's friends got together and had Becker make him a duplicate gun, and it was nicknamed Bo Whoop II. Records show that the aging gunsmith made the second gun in the period from July the 12th to August 5th, 1950. The cost, $500, and it was the last 12-bore magnum old Burt Becker ever built. When Nash died in 1971, Bo Whoop was still lost. Then in 2010, Bo Whoop was auctioned off for $175,000 after having gone through several owners. The buyer was Hal B. Howard Jr., Buckingham's godson. Howard's father, Hal Howard Sr., was Nash's close friend and hunting companion and was often mentioned in Buckingham's stories. In May 2010, Howard Jr. donated the gun for permanent display at Ducks Unlimited's national headquarters in Memphis. It is displayed there along Bow Whoop 2. In November 1921, Nash starred in a filled stream, 16-millimeter film entitled Duck Shooting in Wapanaka Lake, alongside Eden J. Warner, owner and publisher of the magazine, Phil and Stream. Henry Mason, who helped film The Birth of a Nation, used a Carl Ackley camera, moving camera that is. The Wapanaka film stayed on the outdoor circuit for 20 years, with its debut occurring at the Waldorf 
Astoria in New York. And by the way, if you're an interested in the 1921 film of that hunt, I have it available on a DVD. All you have to do is go to my website, waterfowling.net. Now, continuing on, as the years passed, so did a great number of ducks and geese as they headed for the rice fields to the west around Stuttgart and Gillette. When asked to compare the quantity of ducks in the old days, and in 1934, Nash lamented, The comparison is laughable. When numbers of that club now set out all day and return thankfully at evening with a limit of 12 or even less, it is time to set up and take notice. And yet men who have taken up shooting and within the last 10 years, men who haven't the remotest idea of what real quantities of ducks looks like, scoff at the alleged shortage and boast, why, we have more ducks now than I ever saw. Than they ever saw. At last, yes, only too true. That's Nash talking. Interest began to fade as many old-timers approached retirement or had passed away. Most were getting too old or losing their interest in the Wapanaka Outing Club by the mid-1950s, and the club was costing about $20,000 per year to operate effectively. In addition, the duck season in 1961 was shortened to 30 days with a bag limit of two, the reduction necessitated by a drought, which began in 1959 and resulted in what was described as the worst breeding ground condition in 30 years. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service bought the 5,500 acres club February the 1st, 1961, with funds from the sale of duck stamps. Purchase of the club was part of a federal program to establish a chain of goose preserves down the Mississippi Highway. It was hoped the refuge would draw migrating geese to the lower Mississippi Valley and break up the heavy concentration of honkers around Cairo, Illinois. The government was fearful of a disease outbreak at Cairo, which might wipe out mass flights of waterfowl. Ten years later, Nash died. I can hear him saying after his last hunting season, one year before he died, I have opened another season. Have thus added still another memory. Any more? I don't know. I don't worry about that. I have seen another beautiful season. And I can see Aaron stretching out his hand to greet Nash and saying, Come with me, Mr. Nash. I've been sent to meet and fetch you. All our old friends folks and friends has done got together, all our loved ones and our dogs. And Mr. Nash, you just never seen such duck shooting nowhere. Much sent the mentality existed regarding the old club by its members. When the refuge was considered tearing down the clubhouse that was built in 1913 at a cost of $20,000, an old member wrote a letter to the refuge manager in which he stated, May I put a, in a word to say the fine old structure that has afforded so many sportsmen so much pleasure? In 1983, the clubhouse was laid to rest and replaced with a modern building. What a waste. The prestigious Wapanaka was the setting for several classic waterfowling stories written by Nash. Besides his dead, his foster mentor out of doors was Guido. In an introduction to Colonel H.P. Sheldon's book entitled Tranquility, Nash wrote these moving words. In my youth, a very dear old gentleman, Guido, presented me a shooting diary hand-penned through many decades. Child that I was, I sensed when he put it in my hands that somehow its giving was linked mysteriously to tears that shone in his eyes. I asked wonderly, 
for me, and he whispered, Yes, boy, I give you back my years. Many of Nash's stories could not have been written except for the black paddlers, who were admired for their skills as trackers, callers, guides, and camp cooks. In addition, they were always willing to entertain, and the picturesque yarns spun by some of them around the campfires and in the clubhouse have, when put in print by Nash, enlivened the leisure hours of sportsmen who fortunate has been never to know them well and to appreciate them at their true value. No men of this type are left. Nash and other old-time outdoor writers said that red are the gods that call young men to nature. The rather were the wonders if they were to call the gods other. Nash wrote, The calling of the red gods take the hunters to the pure bosom of nature, whose every phase is replete with beauty, of good fellowship, of love for nature and forgiveness, of the unspeakable, disgusting vulgarities of the civilized battle for life. Every time we bend to inhale the sweet order of the heliotrope, the red gods calls us out to nature. I can hear them calling now, Go, 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 as they have for so many years. Mother Nature pours her life-giving soul, restoring magic upon us all who come to her. Rudyard Kipling wrote this poem, And we go, go, go away from here. The road is clear before you when the old hunting frets comes over you, and the red gods call for you, and the red gods call for me, and I must go. We must go, go, go. All the red gods may be silent so long that you will forget them, that there will come a day when they will call to let you know that no matter what binds you, whether strong arms or ropes of gold, you have to go, and you will hear nothing else. Then, as you would keep your happiness, get up and follow. Follow to the hunting lands of proven desire and known delight. For many happy years, those who loved Wapanaka heard the calling of the red gods and went often to this quiet repose to hunt. But summer sunshines have waned and winter snows have fallen since the last one who cherished it, passed through the clubhouse doors for a day of waterfowling. Perhaps the great hereafter holds as charming a region as the beautiful Wapanaka and the sport and paddlers have found that place. Who knows but that they have found everlasting youth and their comrades of the guns on shaded shores by mystic waters where spirits zephyrs softly sing. Nash Buckingham wrote in his book Halcyon Years, Little did I know then that in the next three decades I will gun 90% of the continent's worthwhile wildfowling areas. But to this day for its size, I have never seen waterfowl life as it used to be at Wapanaka. Now I close this podcast by giving you three more of Nash's famous quotes from his books. As I said, he was a famous outdoor writer and also wrote nine books. Here's the first quote. A duck call in the hands of the unskilled is one of conservation's greatest assets. That came from his book, The Shootingest Gentleman, written in 1934. The second one, we are drifting faster than we even dreamed towards a sterility and wildlife of the marsh and uplands from which there will be no returning. The pace must be slackened. That's also from The Shootingest Gentleman. And the last one, how kind it is that most of us will never know when we have fired a last shot. And that's from the book Nash Buckingham's Letters to John Bailey in 1984. What if I was, I met uh, Dr. Chubby Andrews, and Chubby, be, became, he was a general surgeon here in Memphis, 
and he was up in ages when I met him. We were duck hunting down on Tunica Lake, which is about 40 miles below Memphis, and it's a famous area where the old Beaver Dam Ducking Club is nearby Tunica Lake. But uh, t- Chubby drove up with his good friend Mike Cincianola in a duck blind about 7.30 one morning. We were already duck hunting, had our decoys out, and already killed uh, close to our limit of ducks when they motored up and got wanted to chit-chat. And, uh, of course, we chit-chatted for a while, met Chubby, and, and we became good friends from that point onward. He, Chubby, just every time we were together and we'd hunt together, he would just tell me old stories about Nash Buckingham. So I learned quite a bit about Nash. If you young waterfowlers don't know but, uh, much about Nash Buckingham, I recommend you getting your hands on his books, no matter what you have to do. They're just filled with so much past history and if you'll see when in his writings that he gets a lot of his stories from the old black paddlers and it's hard for most people in today's time the contemporary times of today to understand the love that existed between the old black paddlers and the club members the club members just took care of the black paddlers so well they made sure they had pretty dead gum good cabins to live food to eat christmas gifts all the time they just took really care of them, and their love went deep, and it went both ways. So Chubby was just, when he died, I lost a dear friend, and I miss Chubby. One day I'll join him and Nash, and I'll get to see Nash eyeball to eyeball. Nash is some kind of guy, Wapanaka. When you consider, listen, I don't want to brag on myself, but I consider myself a pretty fair historian of all the waterfowling for most of the states in the united states now i don't know you know the other states other than the mid-south as well as somebody who lives like yancey forrest know who's my good friend who lives in california now he knows the pacific flyway way more than i did but yet i wrote a book on the pacific flyway so i i what i'm trying to express is wapanaka if you consider all the clubs in this country and there were thousands of them most of them began after the Civil War, but I also have got a chapter, and I'll probably do a podcast on it, on the 13 earliest duck clubs prior to the Civil War. And there was only about that many. I think it's 13, but don't hold me to that number. But I'll do that podcast, and you'll know which the earliest podcast or duck clubs were before the Civil War. But anyway, take into consider all the duck clubs that were formed, let's say before the 1930s, just... Wapanaka was one of the premier duck hunting clubs. They came from every city to hunt with the members when invited. Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Chicago, Kansas City, San Francisco. It was unbelievable, folks. And this is just an it's one of my favorite stories, this chapter. This is what I just podcasted to you. So if you get a chance, visit my website, waterfowling.net. You'll see my blog there. It has many of my books. You'll see my videos. As I mentioned, I have a video of this 1921 duck hunt at Wapanaka that Field and Stream did with Ed and J. Warner, the owner and editor of that. So visit it. I see you'll think you'll see a lot through those stories I've written on the on the blog site. And then in closing, I just want to say, may God bless.